Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Burning Books podcast. Nice, sweet, wicked. Where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, it's Beryl Bainbridge. Always the Beryl, never the Bainbridge. The novel is Master Georgie, which I had seen about a million times on the shelves and thought was about chemistry, war, possibly terrorism, the 70s, all of which, except the bit about the 70s, is slightly correct. Master Georgie was published in 1998. First chapter of the novel is entitled Plate 1, 1846 Girl in the Presence of Death And okay, I'm immediately intrigued. I quickly learned this wasn't about food, although Girl in the Presence of Death could be about some kind of banquet. And that the word plate referred to a photographic plate. And there's something about early photography, about the origins of any art or science, or even term, before it's manipulated and diluted, or in this case, turned into taken on an iPhone 6, that's just really exciting. The origins of things and what those things become are often quite far apart from one another, and it's exciting to follow the journey from where it starts to where it is now. But back to the story. Girl in the presence of- You know the rest of it by now. The girl in the chapter heading is Myrtle, who is the novel's most interesting character, and the death is the corpse of Mr. Hardy, father of George Hardy, and that would be Master Georgie. How Myrtle ends up in a photograph with the dead Mr. Hardy is ostensibly the subject of the opening chapter, but the real subject, at least in my mind, is Myrtle. She is a young woman of Heathcliff-esque origins, talking about Wuthering Heights here. In a gesture that's too obvious to be incidental, Myrtle is a ragamuffin orphan picked up on the Liverpool docks by Mr. Hardy, and is brought by him into his grand house where she immediately falls in love with his son, George. It's definitely a softer love that Myrtle has for her stepbrother, George, than the fierce love that Heathcliff has for Catherine, but the echo is there. Myrtle lionizes Georgie, even as she describes how he pushes her aside, treats his mother poorly, and is as self-absorbed, possibly even more so, than most adolescents. In fact, throughout the course of the book, Georgie never really changes, and Myrtle's fruitless love for him never wavers. Which is portentous in a way, for in this book, a book that is organized according to photographic stills, things don't really change. Plate number two is entitled... 1850, a veil lifted. And it continues the motif established in plate number one. This chapter is about the life and activities of Master George Hardy, as seen by the people in his orbit. Is this chapter title, A Veil Lifted, a reference to George Eliot's amazing, amazing novella, The Lifted Veil? Why not? Eliot's short novel is a ghost story of sorts, or maybe a horror story. The overriding memory I have from reading it is of fear, heart-pounding fear. It was... So excellent. This second plate in Master Georgie is narrated by what seemed in the previous plate to be a minor character, a street scoundrel, in a sense like Myrtle, who plays a clever trick on Georgie and ingratiates himself into the Hardy household. His name is Pompey Jones, and like Myrtle, he will form an on and off part of Georgie's coterie, appearing wherever Georgie travels. 
Same thing goes for the next plate. 1854, tug of war beside the sweet waters of Europe. In this part, we're hearing from geologist and generally solid piece of crust, Dr. Potter, also latterly of the Hardy household, and now accompanying George, Myrtle, and shortly Pompey Jones as they gravitate towards the Crimean War. If tug of war beside the sweet waters of Europe refers to another English classic, and I figure it does because why give up comparing one's book to better books when there remain better books out there? I don't know which this other book could be. Maybe it's something by Jeffrey Archer. While Myrtle is the finest character in this novel, Dr. Potter does provide a good counterpoint. Mango and passion fruit cream does have some good acidity there. It does manage to balance that very, very rich chocolate ganache. He's suspicious of the direction the small group is taking and is equally uncertain of Master Georgie, even if he continues to follow him into what the reader senses will be a death trap. Because what do we know about the Crimean War except the charge of the Light Brigade and the fact that the entire thing was a death trap? After having begun in England, the latter chapters of the novel revolve around the battle in Crimea. Anticipation, action, aftermath. It's a long way from home, and it's never entirely clear why the plot follows the line it does. Sure, George thinks he is destined for some kind of heroic fulfillment, and we get the sense the author wants to uphold and explore that dream while dragging through the mud the ideas that underpin it. But really? That's what's driving this plot? This, then, becomes the central question of the book. Can what is, in effect, an insipid idea for a plot still make for a good novel? The answer to that question? Probably. There are all kinds of daft plots that can be turned into excellent literature. Nicholson Baker practically specializes in this kind of thing. One of his novels, The Fermata, was about a man who can pause time, but uses this power to partially undress his co-workers. In the case of the present novel, Georgie's self-indulgence, recklessness, unjustified heroic disposition is, as expected, reinterpreted, satirized, exaggerated. Nationalism and the foreign adventures of an imperial army are exposed as profiteering off sentiment. The high-born men in charge of the forces are revealed, or more like confirmed, as nimrods, in the colloquial, not original sense of the word. But just as you knew that I was going to say that nationalism is largely revolting and that toffs can be twits, you knew Bainbridge was going to say it as well. It's all kind of yesterday's news. At the same time, to say an idea or opinion is unoriginal is not really much of a complaint. Almost every idea we read has been expressed before. Originality, if it does exist, most often comes in the way that thought is expressed. And Bainbridge, when she's on, can get her characters to speak in exciting and sharp ways. Here, for example, is Myrtle, in a moment of self-recognition, confirming and excusing her love of the ever-distant Georgie. It had been my conceit that it was enough to give love, that to receive it would have altered the nature of my obsession. I mean, let's hear that again. Slower. It had been my conceit that it was enough to give love, that to receive it would have altered the nature of my obsession. That is really good. Same goes with Dr. Potter reflecting on a more general subject, the interconnection of chance and destiny. Perhaps chance and destiny are interdependent. 
in that the latter cannot be fulfilled without the casual intervention of the former. A craggy rock placed at a distance from water will never be worn smooth. As Polonius did say, brevity is the soul of wit, and when she's brief, Bainbridge is spicy. But you know what I'm going to say next, right? That these moments are too few and far between, even in a short book like Master Georgie? And the predictability that governs most of the plot, that's the problem of the book. Once the reader gets a grip on Georgie's character, especially his solipsism, and grasps the relation of every other character, Myrtle, Pompey Jones, Dr. Potter, to this self-absorbed center, there's nothing that surprises you. Like an army that's caught in a swamp in Russia, you know you're not going anywhere fast, and you have a strong sense of what the next day, the next chapter, the next plate will bring. As an example of historical fiction, this book got me thinking of Peter Carey's Jack Mags. There's so much that separate these two books. Bainbridge is not trying to write a quasi-Dickensian masterpiece like Carey has done. Master Georgie is a work with a specifically and overtly modern structure and modern concerns. But as two works that do try to speak in the language of their times, I recalled Carey's Amazing Jack Mags because that was a book that fluently absorbed the reader in its period, mid-19th century London. In Bainbridge's work, I never left 2015, I was always in the present, looking backwards. And it goes back to that matter of originality of expression. For every occasion where Bainbridge strikes the balance and produces something wonderfully pithy, there are many more occasions where the same motivation leads the work astray. Characters too often using words like counter and muse instead of saying it plain. They add unnecessary adjectives like sufficiently before suitable in the following sentence. I remain silent, unable to think of a sufficiently suitable response. In this case, suitable is a word that doesn't need the qualification. And why remained silent when most would say kept quiet? Two fewer syllables, 100 decibels lower on the rot-o-meter. Yeah, I'm bitching about something small, but it was a matter of accretion in this book. Death by a thousand editorial oversights. All in all, this novel was flat. A plot that, despite traveling continents, went nowhere. Characters that had little purchase on my imagination. A central character that was neither endearing nor repugnant enough. Frankly, not particularly interesting. And in terms of animating ideas, the ingredients were stale before they were put in the oven. None of this means Bainbridge is definitively not for me. She was nothing if not prolific. But when I return to her, I'll seek something contemporary. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Thomas Bernhard's first novel, the aptly named Frost. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, which has been relaunched and looks gorgeous, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoyed getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Hakano's gone for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Natalie Matheson for reading the excerpts. Who is this weirdo? To Peter Cox, executive producer of the show. The second word is aluminum. 
Okay, no, that's bull. You're doing that on purpose. And as always, and especially now, because now is the time, go chase. April is the greatest month.